Hello and welcome to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, your host for today. I'm with the Mississippi Arts Commission. This is the Arts Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at Mississippi Public Broadcasting. And each week we bring you an in-depth discussion with a different creative Mississippian. We talk to musicians, writers, visual artists, craftspeople, uh, and people who help promote the arts in their community. And today we're going to talk about music and songwriting with our guest, Andrew Bryant. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Larry. Appreciate it. Well, we're actually up in your hood uh, today. We have taken a field trip, and we are at the Southern Documentary Projects office on the campus of uh, University of Mississippi. Thank you, Andy Harper and his uh, crew for letting us come in and set up. So we're in your hometown right now of Oxford, uh, talking to you and several other artists. So uh, tell people, I mean, a lot you've been on the show before, and a lot mm-hmm. of people are familiar with your work as a solo artist and with the band Water Liars, but for maybe people hearing your name for the first time, kind of just give us a little overview. Yeah, I've been playing music under my own name or just writing songs and kind of making my own records in my house and touring around the country for since like the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, sort of in that. So coming up on 20 years now. And kind of midway through that, yeah, I formed a band with a friend of mine from St. Louis at the time uh, called Water Liars. And we did a few albums uh, with uh, Big Legal Mess Records here, which is part of Fat Possum. Um, And we just like hit the road real hard about seven years ago. And we stayed on the road, you know, doing 200 days a year for like three or four years and just hit that real hard. And then um, that kind of died off for a moment. We both wanted to do more solo work. It was kind of two guys who were songwriters that formed a band, you know, type of situation. So we both got the itch to kind of do different things that wasn't what we were doing together. And uh, I'm still doing that, and he's still doing that, and that's just kind of where I'm at. And your most recent uh, album came out last year, which right. is recorded here. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, ain't, I'm going to say, Ain't It Like the Cosmos? Ain't It Like the Cosmos. I got it. All yeah. right. <laughs> Without even looking at that's the it. CD cover. Yeah. I, I think about that. I don't know if people said anything to you but I, I and i'm sure there's no connection but there's that uh the late chris bell from big star had uh-huh. his, his record and it was called um i am the cosmos, I am the cosmos. yeah right, so right. i think there's definitely that you know i knew that record i'd listened to it a lot i was never like a it wasn't like one of my go-to records that was like influential to me but big star and chris bell like i knew all that stuff and i think just it was in my subconscious somewhere and I remember when I wrote that line, I just kind of wrote it on the spot for the song that it's in. And it just kind of, I was like, oh, is that where that came from? Am I ripping that off? I don't think so. It's a little different. So, yeah. It's, it's plenty fine. It's yeah, plenty yeah. fine. But uh, so I, I was thinking about when I was driving up today, you know, when you do interviews, you probably say, well, I'm from Mississippi. And that's the end of it. Well, for the Arts Hour... You know, it's not enough to say you're from Mississippi. Right. It's like you're from Calhoun County. So what part right. of Calhoun, you know, you can go down to the uh, to the to the, the, the county road that you lived off of. Okay. And I'm sure well, the, the folks will want to know that. Right. Well, when I was I was actually born in Oxford at the uh, the hospital here. That's just in South Lamar. They just moved it. But I was born there um, on Larry Brown's birthday. The writer Larry Brown. How about that? We have the same birthday. And then uh, first grew up in Pittsburgh, Mississippi, which is where my dad's family is from, which is just south of Bruce on what's called the Old Town Road. It's the, There's no sign that says Old Town Road, but it's like the Old Town community. But then shortly after that, we moved down to what's called the Shiloh community, which is just south of Big Creek, Mississippi. It's kind of between Big Creek and 
the Grenada Lake Dam and kind of no man's land down there. And that's where my mom's people were from. So I lived there until third, fourth grade. And then we uh, moved back to Pittsburgh. Um, to the big town of Pittsburgh. <laughs> the big town of Pittsburgh. It was kind of like moving between next to where my mom's folks live and where my dad's folks live, you yeah. know, and and just kind of moving houses around and stuff like that. So, so kind of growing up, I saw in an interview that that you were homeschooled, and I'm, right. I'm just curious about kind of, uh, and I know a lot. Your initial kind of musical history comes out of the church, right? So. So it was kind of all like kind of together, your family life and, and the church and that? Definitely. I mean, it was kind of my whole existence for, and that really started with that initial move away from Shiloh when I was fourth grade. That's when I started. Uh, well, I went to a Christian school for a couple of years and then fifth grade. I was homeschooled from fifth grade all the way until 11th grade. So like, yeah, most of my like childhood was like being homeschooled and going to church like three times a week. And when I was about 13, I started um, playing drums and we had like a church band. So this was more of like a Pentecostal type, you know, church that was just starting and trying to like build a full band, you know, for their like worship service. And I basically told the pastor I could play drums and I never had before. I owned a pair of drumsticks. So I was like a cocky 13 year old boy who thought he could do anything. So, uh, but they had a drum kit and they let me take them home and I practiced for like a week and then I played the next Sunday with him on the pastor on piano. And then I kept doing that for like, I guess about, you know, until I was 18 or 19, I did that like three times a week. And that's a great way to learn how to play music because you're both learning how to play and also learning how to perform, how to connect with people by playing, you know? really builds a feel for how to play music. And and in the Pentecostal church the music is kind of setting mood and then so much about up and down. And yeah, feel, right. Yeah, that you really get a sense of like that part of playing music. And that was very formative for me. And then also just learning how to play with other musicians who are not always like they were all kind of self-taught, you know, which is like the def- definition of being like in a teenage garage band you know it's just like a bunch of teenage boys that don't really know how to play trying to figure it out so, so they were all contemporaries roughly that were I mean, well, yeah a lot of the dudes that ended up playing like one's my brother-in-law now still leads the music at that church he's like a year older than me and then it was like a couple other dudes there were a couple of older folks like the guy who pastored the church originally played piano he would like play piano lead the worship service then stand up and preach it was just him when he started and then as more people came in and we all kind of started learning the instruments, we just like took on those roles and stuff. Too. Well, I just, I'm always amazed at, you know, there's kind of that whole, I don't know if you've seen kind of in the black church, that, that right. rise of the the really uh, flashy um, gospel drummers, you mm-hmm. know, with all the licks and stuff. And it's like, like you're saying, you just got all that time to play and perform that a typical teenage kid Maybe their band gets to play once every six months at right. the rec center or whatever, where right. you're like in a performance situation, getting the hours and hours. You're getting that 10,000 hours already. You know? Yeah, and I love that you brought up that type of drummer, like uh, guys that were in like uh, the black and African-American churches around there. I wanted to be one of those guys. <laughs> like I wanted to be able to play like that. Because well, a lot of times our church would actually, we would trade services with one of the black churches in town. And oh, wow. Like, and it was, that was actually, like, very informative for me as, like, a young person, too, like, just having the experience of a non-white church 
and the way that went and the ideas that were there and the music that was there. And uh, I really gravitated to that. Like I really wanted to, I wanted to be that drummer. I don't know if I ever, I still haven't achieved that, but (laughs) (laughs) that's, yeah, that's more than 10,000 hours for sure. Yeah. We're talking with Andrew Bryant today on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and uh, this is the Arts Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB. Uh, looking at another interview, you kind of talk about some of the uh, probably names not familiar to our our wider audience, but some some kind of the you know the the punk rock forefathers of uh, you know Minor Threat. I think you mentioned, mm-hmm. of course, Nirvana. Of course, Nirvana was kind of in the bigger context, right. but I was just wondering about given your situation being homeschooled, living in a rural area, kind of pre-internet times, how did you, how were you able to connect with that music? I was also, if you really look at it and you study this, and I think a lot of people are starting to do that now, it was very uh, specific time in what is called Christian music that was happening, uh, which you had like the, what is it, CCM, like the Contemporary Christian Music Association was really trying to do more pop styles of yeah. but Christian albums and right. part of that was uh there was a growing subgenre of like Christian punk and Christian grunge music and like all this and growing up like in a homeschooled house where it was, my parents were like really kind of pushed me to listen to quote unquote Christian music as much as possible I just kind of gobbled all that stuff up and then that led me into like oh what is the who are the forefathers of these actual sounds and things like that, and so I just like kind of went head first into like um, what is like known as like the forefathers of punk, you know. Like I just kind of surrounded myself in that. And my, so I was playing church music on Sunday and Wednesdays, and then back at home in my headphones, just listening to Minor Threat and Nirvana and stuff like that. So I have that like unique mixture. And were you going up to Memphis to find that, or could you get that in Oxford? Or well, that, that in Memphis, Oxford okay. didn't have any of that at the time. Okay. Um, I talk to people about that now that are kind of younger and live here. And I was like, man, it's a totally different town. Because back then it just wasn't that type of music here. And Memphis has always had that like punk scene. Yeah. And uh, surprisingly, uh, Tupelo kind of had a little bit of one in the mid nineties. And it was a lot of high school kids, you know, and there like a couple of young folks that were there, like early twenties were trying to create a space for, for like young punk musicians um, and even like hardcore bands and things like that and places for them to play. Yeah. Um, and that, which is them. always the problem, right, right? Right. And that's always the problem. And there's, I'm always fascinated by the line between the kind of youth pastor type of dude mentality that creates a space for, you know, kids that are free to express themselves into these things. And then sometimes those dudes often transition into being like a skateboard dude and they just want to like create a space that's safe for like all ages people. And then that always brings out every like kid that wants to play a guitar or ride a skateboard or like, you know, that's just the people that show up a lot of times in those places. Well, I remember being in Jackson in the late nineties, early two thousands, like that band color revolt kind of came out of that where there was a a non-denominational church that had a space and they would have these, you know, I was the elderly man, but there was like 400 (laughs) kids in this room watching these bands play, you know, it was amazing. But yeah, yeah. And they kind of gradually, I guess secularized or they, they dropped that, but yeah, well they just, you know, over time that, that was just their avenue into even getting into it. I know all of the guys in color revolt. I've yeah. played a lot of shows with them over the years and I'm good friends with a couple of those guys. And, and I think we do, we both have that band and me have always had kind of a similar background. I know a lot of people from Jackson, uh, Matthew McGee, 
Uh, I don't know if you know him. He's a, like a local uh, musician. Right. Very talented. Yeah. Very talented. He used to play in like bands in the late 90s, early 2000s. We would play together at Tupelo or we'd go down to Hattiesburg and play with his band. You know, we'd, we were doing what was called shows, you know, which was like one of these old flyers that was black and white that someone pasted a bunch of stuff on there was like eight bands on the bill and it only lasted for two hours you know it was like one of those situations but that was kind of our whole world back then you know it was something different to do and it was a way to express ourselves and like be artistic we need a graduate student to go back and uncover this this yeah yeah. (laughs) just for mississippi yeah well so how did you uh kind of by the early to mid 2000s you were kind of into your Song, kind of more of your songwriter kind of uh, right I mean, yeah I kind of so I played in like this like hardcore band for a couple of years and then that kind of fizzled out and I was that wasn't really my scene and then I started a band that was based out of Memphis actually that was just like an indie rock band and kind of a straight rip off of one of my favorite bands and that was my first chance at like really writing songs and then putting a band together and like playing it uh, so I did that for a couple of years and then my bandmates were like you know going to college or finishing college and moving on and that fizzled out and so I was kind of left alone like all my friends had decided like okay I'm not gonna play in bands anymore I'm gonna like get my philosophy degree and move away or I'm gonna get a job and do this and Come I just on, guys. I yeah. just never I just never stopped you know yeah. and so then it was at that point I just started just writing songs in my bedroom and recording them and then just started performing on my own because it was easier that way you know like than trying to build like brand new you know connections constantly and trying to build a band constantly was was just always kind of a hassle you know well let's uh let's talk a a little more after the break but let's play a a track from your your latest cd what are we going to listen to first i think this first song is called who am i uh it's the second track off my new album the title kind of speaks for itself. It's kind of like a self-reflection, self-doubt, asking who you are. Um, but it's kind of a bold statement. And I think the sound of the the song, too, is like kind of got more of the punk rock vibe that I, was from my youth. And I really was trying to kind of revisit the idea of like, who am I? Like, who have you turned into to this point of writing songs? Very good. Andrew Bryant on the Arts Hour. We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey. And our guest today is Andrew Bryant. He's a singer-songwriter from Oxford. Uh, originally from Calhoun County, uh, the Old Town community, yeah. Pittsburgh. All right. Let's be specific, everybody. <laughs> you know, one of the things that strikes me about your music, and maybe you talk about this, you know, you kind of have a – I hear some of the kind of classic kind of singer-songwriter I mean, or, you know, the songwriter things. You know, I'm thinking like, you know, just the classic Texans and Towns right. Van Zandt and all these people, but that's not really – did you know of any of that, Bob Dylan or any of those kind of things when you were starting into this or was it? Well, all of that came later. Like okay. what we kind of just built up to was around 2004, which at the time I was 24 years old and kind of like been in and out of bands and it was kind of at a point where like, what am I going to do with my life? And with my music in particular, it was the big question. And I think I just started, I'd never liked music like that growing up. Like it didn't, wasn't a part of my world. Um, just never really thought about it and I just kind of started listening to Bob Dylan uh, more of the like learning act who the Beatles actually were just anything that I could get my hands on uh, and then actually like a lot of old country music I started listening to uh, Johnny Cash a lot because that's around the time the American Al- American 4 album came out which was really big um, and that sound and the way he did that 
like influenced me a lot to just think about like oh what what is here like what is writing a song about you know uh, I think before it was more just like being in a band and so that was something clicked about writing songs and I felt like I needed to learn from the who was considered the best you know so lots of towns lots of Bob Dylan lots of Neil Young just like just kind of pouring through those records these are also the time uh, uh just just post napster but you could really still download a lot of free mp3s yeah and that was kind of the way i did it you know i wasn't going out buying records i just sat at home and i would just download full albums and just you know constantly had it in my ears and i guess in some ways you were kind of catching up too because right. you had been in this kind of alternate universe of music and right. you had to kind of go back and right. learn all these things that people would hear in high school of like course. heart yeah. of gold and all that yeah know? exactly like i didn't even know uh, who those people I remember one of the most embarrassing thing I'm going to tell like an embarrassing story on myself All right, one of the most go. embarrassing things I can remember when it comes to music history that's ever happened to me was we were at, at um, I think it was like my grandmother's or someone's for it was like someone's grandmother for Christmas I was there and like some friends of uh, my girlfriend at the time was like they were talking about Mick Jagger on TV and I didn't know who Mick Jagger was and they were like you don't know who Mick Jagger is and like you play in bands and stuff. And I was just like, isn't he one of those guys from like something like I know who, you know, and I was like 23 or 24 at the time, but I didn't know who Mick Jagger was. And then I don't know. I'm still not a big fan of the stones, but you know, it's okay. But you've caught up now. I've caught up. Yeah. I definitely know who Mick Jagger is. <laughs> yes. So you were, so you're listening to kind of the, all the old classics and then you started just you're basically on your own kind of like kind of germinating this these sort ideas. of but you know there was this was also a time where um like in memphis there was a, the band lucero that's based out of memphis those guys had been in punk bands before and they were kind of moving the alt country route and a lot of people were doing that it's kind of the uncle tupelo you know to wilco time there were like all of these bands doing that and if you were like in the music scene you knew about all this and i think i was just curious as to what was happening and was like oh maybe that's where i need to be you know it's like fitting into that world and it just felt really kind of natural to do that being from like old town road pittsburgh mississippi you know like yeah it, and kind of growing up in this like more really southern place was the first time i kind of actually was able to put that together you had an advantage on people i guess yeah, yeah yeah and so you but then you also had uh so were you recording everything yourself? Because you were playing, you ha you could play drums, you play guitar. So were, right. you, were you doing all of like just tracking everything yourself at home and that kind of thing? Or? Uh, yeah, basically. Uh, and that was also another thing I was teaching myself. I didn't really know how to do that. Um, my, my mom had helped me buy a like desktop computer around that time. Uh, I was working a full time like construction factory type of job at the end too and then my working with my dad at his sawmill so I was like working full-time and then like all night or all weekend I was trying to figure out how to work these mics I bought and like writing songs and recording them and trying to learn how to produce things and like mix things and but I basically would always just take albums that I like songs that I like tracks that I like and say like I want my tr this track to kind of sound like that and I just tried to do that you know so all very DIY though. I like, and I think I wasn't trying to isolate myself, but there was that point where it was like people were kind of moving on and I kind of realized that like people are going to come and go out of this. So I'm just going to learn how to do it all myself. That way I can be as like self-sustainable as possible about it. 
And how were you, was it just like a, um, a recording project at that point? Or did you kind of find, were you trying to perform it all by yourself or? I was, I mean, I kind of always was playing as many shows as possible. Um, and it was usually in Memphis. Like I say, back then Oxford was a lot different and a lot of the types of bands that I liked, most of them were usually playing in Midtown Memphis, you know, middle of the week on their tour. And I would hop on as like an opener for those. I did that for years. And then actually a friend of mine, who's like one of my best friends now, he was sort of doing the same thing I was doing, but he lived in Pennsylvania and he was coming through. I'd never met him. He asked me to open for him. So I did. And then he was like, I tour all over the country. You want to go? And I was like, yeah. And so I ended up at that point, which was around 2005, really starting to go out about six, eight weeks a year, at least, you know, just two guys in a car with acoustic guitars, like kind of doing the Towns Van Zandt thing, you know, like driving around and playing. And so then like getting out and playing my songs in front of people also taught me more about songwriting and performing. What was working and what wasn't. What, work, what yeah. people responded to, what they didn't respond to and things like that. So. You're listening to The Arts Hour. Our guest today is Andrew Bryant. He's a singer-songwriter from Oxford. Uh, yeah, I was I was curious. I wanted you to kind of talk a little bit about this, the scale of those. People think, you know, of course, our listeners are all ages, and they might think, you know, right. the tour bus and that whole routine. But this is a, this is a whole other scale in terms of just talk about some of the places you played and kind of like how that, you know, that life of being on the road as a very independent kind of self-produced musician. Yeah, it was all very low budget. I mean, we mostly traveled around in a like 90s Subaru, kind of beat up Subaru, but had a great engine on it. Uh, that was my friends. And we would just put two sleeping bags, boxes of CDs, two acoustic guitars, some extra cables for our guitars if we needed them, strings, um, one bag of clothes, and we would play a coffee house in one town with 10 people there. We'd play a might have a bar show a few nights a week. Then every now and then we'd do something on a college campus that was like sponsored by the music program or something like that. There's always, there used to be a lot more of that. There used to be a lot of college type shows that, you know. The student associations. Student associations yeah. and, and all that would do. doesn't happen as much anymore. But So we were just always just playing basically whatever we could get. And then he had been out there for a couple of years, so he'd made some connections you know, with people that wanted them back. And so me hopping on that, I kind of learned to meet people and keep keep in touch and keep those connections and do things. And so, man, it was, I mean, we're talking getting paid a hundred bucks a night for two, both of us. Yeah. So it's like you put gas in the car, you know, get go to Taco Bell and then ask someone if we could sleep on their floor. Like, I don't remember staying in a hotel touring maybe once until I was in, like almost 30. Yeah, <laughs> I was sleeping on people's sofas, F- hard floors, you know, dirty punk rock dudes' floors with dogs walking around. <laughs> it's just like not glamorous. You know? Yeah. yeah. But you could, I guess over time, you could feel kind of the building that network of kind right. of meeting people and, and figuring out, oh, this is, these are who I should be, people I should be playing with. And this is the venue and right. kind of trial by trial and error working your way around yeah yeah you know you play in a certain there's some the kind of the rule of touring is if you have a bad show at a town don't write it off you keep going back and maybe you have to change you know place like venues a couple of times but usually 
after three or four times playing there, there's going to be a few people that keep showing up, and they're going to bring more people, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there's some towns you can play them eight, ten times in two Nothing. years, and it's just like, okay, we shouldn't come here anymore. <laughs> but, uh, but the rule was always just to kind of, like, keep going, keep pressing, just because no, if there's if there were two people there listening to us, we were happy. Because it was really more about us, like, playing our songs and kind of being out on the road and, like, seeing the country and meeting different people. Um, but you really learn a, a lot about how much people care about songs, care about art, care about taking care of people in that community. There really is a community built around it in this country, you know. And uh, if you choose to participate in that and be a part of it, it's a really great thing. But I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing I may be misspeaking here in terms of like, the water when the water liars came out you guys got a lot of great press and a lot a lot more attention you know a lot of attention so was there i mean share a hotel room i mean there was a little bit of a bump up in terms of your venues yeah we got we got got up to motel sixes all right all right (laughs) hey like i remember like when it was like every night we can stay in a motel six i was like this is actually not bad you know this is a bed at least in a shower and there's not a lot of people that i don't know around all the time you know so it was, yeah, we thought we made it, but we were still riding around in a in a really really bad GMC Safari van where our air conditioning didn't work, and then our heat was stuck on like <laughs> when we like couldn't get it fixed. And you're like driving through Arizona in the middle of June with your heat stuck on, and it's like 106 degrees. So there was still a lot of that, you know. But but then a couple of years into that, through the water liars, it kind of got to the point, yeah, where it was like we were getting taken care of a lot a lot more and that made it a lot better but we were all kind of at this point i'm in my mid-30s so it's kind of like I don't, i'm not gonna sleep on people's floors anymore Your back's gonna so get i out, can't yeah. do that <laughs> like i won't be able to play drums tomorrow <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Well, t- well talk about so you've done this uh this is your second s- solo record post kind of the water liars right. period so maybe talk about I'm curious about a little bit about the kind of the community of musicians who are kind of in this area now, because you, you have kind of, there seems to be kind of a nice group of kind of collaborators right. that work on each other's projects and are, it's, you know, people come and go and that, but yeah. I'm just curious about that, like how Oxford is right, you know, in the last year or two in terms of that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a lot better in the last year or two, but it's even less, a lot better in the last just five to ten years. I mean, and I've seen people come in and out, but there seems to be a continuous group that comes in and out. And I think that's being held together just by it being an important place where that is available now. You know, and there's been a lot of attention paid to smaller acts that are from here, and it's not always about the big bands that make it, you know. And that's always really important. Yeah, and, like, all the guys that played on my record now are just, like, friends of mine from here who kind of moved into town and were musicians, and we all found each other, you know, and, like, we were all interested in the same things. And they're all, like, a good uh, 10 years younger than me or more, but they're, like, kind of the new kids on the block that are, like, real good at at playing guitar, real good at playing drums, you know, and stuff. And um, I always, like collaborating with people like that you know as much as possible and I kind of got to the point where with my last album like you said like I'd made all my records playing all my stuff myself you know and I got to the point where I was like you know what I kind of want to leave that some of this burden to other people Um, like I had demoed the whole new album myself and then I gave it to them and I was like here let's learn these basically this way but then you guys like 
be as creative as possible with it, you know. Uh, and that, like, helped me. I think it helped me a lot focus on, like, other things going on in my life. And it helped me also just kind of perform my guitar and vocal better without having to think about everything else. Do you allow them kind of space to kind of come up with a new idea too as well? I mean, yeah, they surprise you with things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a, of- there's a ton of guitar stuff that was written by my friend Kel Kellum on this album. And he would be like, I have a part. And I was like, do it. Go for it. Uh, I mean, I would sit there and say, like, I like this one better, this, like, or expand on that, you know, if he had, like, two different ideas. But I was always trying to encourage them as much as possible, but just especially on this album. Now, every album, I don't think, in every project, to me, I don't approach the same way. But that was the mission of this album and that record, and that's how I wanted it to be made. And, and I knew that the sounds that came out of that would be the result of what I was going for. Let's listen to another track. Uh, give us a give us an intro to the, the next track here. Uh, this is a song called "The Price Was Right." Um, this is the only song I had a music video made for this that recently played in the film festival. Uh, so if you like this song, look up the music vessel. Look up the video online. It, it features my 11 year old son, me and him shooting some basketball, kind of going through our normal day of like what we would do like on a Saturday or after school or something. Let's check it out now. Andrew Bryan on the Arts Hour. We're back on the Arts Hour for our final segment, and we're talking to Andrew Bryant today here in Oxford. Thanks to the Southern Documentary Projects Center for allowing us to come in and record. Thank you, Andy Harper and company. One interesting project, a little side project, I guess you'd call it, that I've seen you've been doing the last couple of years is doing a, a song, Christmassy or a Christmas mm-hmm time sign they're not right. Christmas. i would say if you're looking for you know uh, goodwill holiday messages it's not andrew bryant but he does i think i put up somewhere like if you if you're sick of all the saccharin here's a corrective for that so. <laughs> yeah holiday tunes i guess is the best way to say okay it. yeah some people have called them sad christmas songs but i wouldn't say that completely but man it's just something i started doing like five years ago you know, it's as a songwriter, it's always good to have a prompt sometime when you're in kind of a, a place where you feel like you're not writing a lot. Um, and it usually hits me like in the fall around holidays, you get to this point where you're just not really writing anything. You're so busy just doing other things. This is one year I just decided that, like I needed a day to write a song to like make something. I didn't know what to write about. It was in one of those points. And I was like, well, I'll try to write a, Christ- a Christmas theme. And so I just kind of did this kind of autobiographical look at like <laughs> how I view Chris, like have viewed a couple of Christmases I'd had. And I just like, I just put it up online for free and like gave it to people as like a Christmas gift and then people really liked it. And then I kind of realized that like uh, every year I had that urge to kind of write a song and I kind of stumbled upon something, which is like, um, it's always kind of a, it's most joyous, cheerful time of year, but for some people it's not. Oh yeah. You know? And I think I read somewhere that it's one of the most, most suicides are occurred around the holidays. I think whether it's financial stress or depression or all kinds of things. And I've kind of, you know, I've seen that a lot with people, you know, like just, I think just having conversations with people on the side, they're just always stressed about the holidays and, for me, it was always kind of like a stressful time, even though there were great Christmases. I've had great times for Christmas, but, and I've, I'm the type of dude who likes to interrogate those feelings and ideas, you know, that I'm having and it helps me work it out. It's almost therapeutic to just say like, this is, this was what happened. This is what I felt and like put it out there. And it's, people seem to have really like 
resonated with a lot of people. They were like, thank you. It's also like people are looking for authentic authenticity around that time because everything is so, you know, kind of inauthentic. Forced cheerfulness. Right, yeah. forced cheerfulness. And I think just a little bit of authenticity goes a long way in times like that. So that's just what I'm trying to do. It's kind of interesting to listen back to all of them now and see how, like, much I've changed through it and like they're progressively getting a little happier as we go which is good yeah I would say 17 to 18 was a big right a big jump in 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 positive you know not positive but not getting there down into the (laughs) very depths of something yeah or deep in somewhere yeah so you know a lot of songwriters get touchy about you know like this person in the song is not me or, you know, right. like that. But I, 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 and maybe I, I hope I'm not misreading it, but it seems like, and a lot of times you are kind of talking about yeah. parts of yourself in your songs. You know, it's a very uh, strong eye kind of Definitely. focus and that. So is that something that, um, have you had like, do, <laughs> do people want to confess things to you? Do they, I mean, you know, is that a, is that a, ever a struggle in terms of, you know, putting something out there that's, very personal and and having to kind of deal with the whatever people perceive of you it is like i mean there's drawbacks to it i guess um i think a lot of people like to put the character thing on like songwriters because they don't want to think that certain things like that are actually true you know or maybe it even makes us seem like better writers than we actually are you know if you could make this up about someone else it would really make you look like a genius but i i my my opinion is most songwriters are doing this and I am just very thick skinned about it in in a lot of ways because I confront that in my music and my songs all the time. So like anything that I've ever written a song about, I would sit down and, and have a cup of coffee and talk to you about, you know, pretty honestly and openly without it hurting me because I've already dealt with the hurt through the song, you know, but yeah, a lot of it is about me. But then there are, there are things in my songs where I'm trying to deal with bigger ideas through myself, through the lens of myself also. So it's like, a, it's not just straight autobiographical. I'm usually trying to use things that I observe in my life to point to bigger ideas and, you know, just shine a light on things that are, I think, kind of universal for most people. Mm-hmm. You touched on this a little bit about the Christmas songs, and, and, and I think, you know, kind of the um, the idea of, you know, music being part of your work. Right. That it's not just divine thing comes down and strikes you and you write this brilliant song, but there's this kind of like the everyday, you know, getting on the seat of the tractor and going with it. Right. So, and so how do you, it seems like you have that kind of, this is just something that you're going to work go at all the time and sometimes it's going to work and sometimes it's not talk about how you that process of kind of like how you view it and how you work it into your everyday life yeah I think some of that probably goes back to my homeschooling and the way I was raised it was kind of a if you didn't know something it was you would figure it out you didn't always just have a teacher telling you facts you memorize them you wrote it down like the way that my homeschooling went was a lot more kind of like you want to learn how to do something you research it, learn how to do it. And then also, you know, and then seeing the example of my father, who was just kind of a guy who had a pretty good job that he'd worked at for a long time and then ended up at a desk and he didn't like it. So he bought his own sawmill because he loved just kind of getting his hands dirty and he just wanted to learn how to do a thing and he just did it, you know. And I think all of that kind of goes into my work ethic 
with everything that I do. Uh, and I think it shows in songwriting. Uh, I would say to that too, also like when I was young in the church, there is so much telling of you, especially as a young child that like you are touched by God, like you have this divine gift that was given to you. Uh, and I never really bought that. Like, there came to be a point where I was like, I got to take a little bit of credit for this because I know that I'm putting a lot of thought into this. Like I'm really trying to figure this out. So I just kind of took that with a grain of salt to be, you know, a thing. And then over time kind of realized like I have taught myself how to do this thing. It's important, but I also know how to touch people with it because that is a, a basic human thing that we do is communicate through art and music and that's how we convey emotions back and forth. That's how these emotional things happen. So, and that's something people can learn how to do in one form or another. You know, I think it's it, you really have to have a desire to want to live a life to do something like that. So. You're listening to the Arts Hour on MPB, and our guest today is Andrew Bryant, a singer-songwriter from Oxford. Well, talk about just kind of the is is it something? Are you constantly writing? Are you do you have do you set well, you said like the Christmas thing is kind of like right. a project to kind of make yourself right. So how does it kind of work into your everyday life? I'm not one of those guys that writes every day. I don't even play my guitar every day. Um, I don't sit down at the piano every day. You know, a lot of musicians do that. And I got a lot of friends who, who do take that. And a lot of songwriters that I admired had that ethic of wake up every day, have coffee, um, go write, do something. But I'm, I do that for a period, and then I produce a lot of material, and then I work on it, and then I just kind of sit back and live my life for a while. And I guess fortunately or unfortunately, like I'm kind of like in a place in my quote-unquote career where releasing music is always kind of like trying to find a record label or if I'm going to do it myself or like all that. So there's always a lot of like business things that have to happen that – keep me from releasing music as quickly as I could. Uh, so I think that keeps me from writing as much as I do, frankly, because I kind of write for a pro like I write for a project, I write for a thing. I don't just write for pleasure all the time. Um, but you know, it's like right now I have a new album that's 98.9% complete, you know, and I'm just kind of in the process of trying to figure out how I'm going to release it and it won in what way, you know, like how I want to package it all up, how I want it to look, what the overall theme is, is and all that. So, Is it still important for you to there be, you know, now people are just, you know, stuff is not even coming out on physically. Hmm. Is, do you still have a, do you still think of it being like, I need an album that has a, has a physical entity and is kind of out there in that way? Or does I'm, that? I'm sort of getting to this point where like, I, I, it's 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 tricky you know a lot of people only legitimize an album being an album if it came out on vinyl these days you know like cds are not even as important anymore um i mean my last album came out on cd and digital but digital is really the king now i mean that's where most of the record sales are happening and streaming and all that it's i think there should be an honest discussion among the music industry of why you know like vinyl is as important as it is sometimes you know and who's like why does it legitimize one artist and not another you know so. and that's been going back forever it goes I mean, back forever i mean 30 years ago i remember you know the punk rock band you weren't legitimate right. until you had the little vinyl seven inch if you right, had a right. cassette that was fine yeah. but you were not 
in the yeah you're still one of the club. young kids yeah yeah you gotta get in the club yeah i mean the music's always been like that and life is like that you know it's just there's been standards built up the way things happen um uh with me like i'm kind of at a point where i'm trying to figure out where i want to go with it you know and i want to just kind of get a, a a way to go about it that is like sustainable for me and i can just produce a lot more material you know without having to think about record contracts and record distributing and all those types of things and i really like the digital model for that i like the democratization if you will of someone being able to just kind of run their own show produce their own music at home put it online sell it you know book their own shows play that i mean that's the most punk rock thing in the world really you know a lot about that yeah, so yeah. I, so. <laughs> you got that you got that figured out yeah what are you doing in terms of um you know you, when you play in mississippi i know you kind of plays a full band are you taking full bands out on the road or are you doing for for your kind of touring is it solo stuff how are you handling that it's just kind of a mixture i mean the last couple of years there's been tours that i've done with um with full band and trying to get everybody together sometimes it's tricky so sometimes i'll do a tour solo sometimes i'll do shows locally where it's full band sometimes it's just me and one other guy you know i'm just kind of a mixture you know it just depends on the availability because you know it's, it's always the trick with playing music and having a band is like finding people when they get married and they have girlfriends and they have other jobs because music doesn't always pay the bills it's not always easy to get people to, together and have enough money to pay people and do things so if my name is on the show i'll be there <laughs> I, I, I can i can assure you that there might be more people there might be less people but i'll be there so you've got a new rec, a new recording project that's kind of in process right. now, all right? And and is that something you've home recorded or back to doing it at home and okay. kind of changed up my process a little bit, um, trying to get out of my, you know, any ruts I've gotten into in the past twenty years. So I'm trying new things um, with recording and production and things like that, and I'm excited to get it out into the world and see what people think about it. For people who want to hear more about you you know look you up that kind of thing where where should we send them uh my website is andrewbryantmusic.com and that'll pretty much send you anywhere but uh, on twitter i'm at magnolia state on instagram i'm at magnolia state uh you can find me on facebook just andrew bryant music you can type that in you'll find my band page i'm on there so. thank you so much for coming we really appreciate it yeah thanks larry thanks for having me it's good talking to you for those of you tuning in, you've tuned in late, uh, you'd like to listen back or you want to share the show with a friend, you can go to the MPB website at mpbonline.org. They post all our past shows as streaming files, or you can go out there and find the podcast of it as well. Until next time, we'll be seeing you around.